Good morning. Hey, so as you just heard Nathan pray and announce roundtable tonight, we hope you'll all come. It's going to be a lot of fun. You'll get to see us act kind of silly a couple of times, but we'll also be serious. We'll be talking about God's Word and why trust it and hope to give you all some helpful handles and points of discussion for people who don't know the Lord and just for leading your own families in the month and for thinking about, talking about. I think it's going to be a great time, 6.30 tonight. So you may be surprised to learn today that we're doing another uh, Faith of Our Fathers sermon. You might have thought it ended long ago, but it's not over. This is a series about our fathers and mothers in the faith from the Old Testament, and what we can learn from them. And today we're talking about Samuel, who was the final judge of Israel. So here's where we are. We started Faith of Our Fathers way back at creation, Adam the first man, Eve the first woman, and we traced it up through the story of Noah and the flood, the story of Abraham receiving God's promises, his promised child Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob the deceiver, Jacob's son, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, the heads of those tribes, Joseph, and his uh, slavery in Egypt, the people's entrance into Egypt, and they're being led out of there by Moses. Their wanderings in the wilderness, and them entering the promised land under Joshua, Moses' successor. And we talked in that sermon about Rahab in particular, you might remember. Rahab who entered God's people from outside of God's people as an enemy and became a friend. And then the very last sermon was on the judges. And so we're still in the time of the judges today. Now, the judges were a motley crew. They were men that God raised up to deliver his people from enemies. Why did God's people have enemies that successfully invaded their land and oppressed them and killed them over and over? Because God's people refused to worship him. They would not do it. They liked the idols around them more than they liked the living and true God. And so every time that they gave their hearts to other gods, God said, I'm giving you to the people those gods came from. And God's people would be enslaved and oppressed and killed. And then they would say, wah, ah, ouch, uncle, I'm sorry, we're sorry. And sometimes they meant it more than other times. But God loved his people. And so he would raise up someone to deliver them. And you might remember a little bit about some of these men Uh, they were flawed, to say the least. Like all of the heroes of the Bible, they were really flawed. Gideon, Gideon acted like a bloodthirsty tyrant at times. Jephthah sacrificed his only daughter, or probably people argue about that one. But anyway, it didn't look good. It was bad. Samson had a thing for prostitutes. And now we come to Samuel, the final judge of Israel, He's a prophet, he's a priest, and I'll just say up front, he's the best of all the judges. He's the one who walks the closest to God. And God saved the best for last in Samuel. So his story has a lot to teach us. We're going to go through a lot today. It's about God's way of bringing down the proud and bringing up the humble. And it's about the way we ought to raise our kids to know God. And it's about how disappointing the life of a Christian can be and how much waiting we do and how we die without seeing all the things we're waiting for from God come into appearance, come into life. So let's dive in. We start with a woman named Hannah, who's sad. This is 1 Samuel chapter 1. 
There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this is Hannah's sadness and her grief. Hannah wanted to be a mother, but she wasn't. And the other wife, Peninnah, had kids. And Peninnah was a nasty person. And Peninnah mocked and tormented Hannah. And Hannah would cry. Now, Hannah was her husband's favorite. But with all his good intentions, with all his affection, he couldn't do a lot for her desire for children. I mean, he did try. Here's his attempt to comfort her in verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? You know, if you've ever, if your wife has ever wanted to have children and it's hard and you tell her that, has it helped? Well, hopefully you haven't made that mistake. Um, it's sweet in its way, right? But it's pretty dumb. Your husbands, sorry to tell you, but you are not a replacement for your wife's God-given desire for children. Just not. Don't get confused about that. So Hannah was sad, and Hannah was tormented. Hannah was tormented. So every year, the whole family would go up to the city of Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh's where the tabernacle was. And the tabernacle, you might remember, the tabernacle is the house of God, the dwelling of God, the tent that they set up so that you could come and worship God. And the way you worship is once a year, you go and you offer sacrifice. You offer sacrifice for your sins. And the priest kills the animal, and he burns some of it, and he sprinkles the blood around, and your sins are counted forgiven, and your relationship with God is restored. And then you eat part of that animal in a meal with your family. Why? Why do you eat? Well, the purpose of getting right with God is to walk with God and to have fellowship with God. What does that mean? We like the word fellowship, don't we? It's a, it's a nice Christian word that we use a lot. Fellowship means that you walk with someone, that you have affection, that you have trust, that you have mission together, that you're friends, friends on mission. The purpose of all that stuff is to have fellowship with God. That's why you do it. So you eat a meal. You're eating a meal basically with God. It's a, it's a celebration. It's a feast. That's why you do it. So God set all that up. And the priests also, as part of their living, they get to eat some of the animal that was slaughtered. That's how they get food. So that's what you do. And, and one year, Hannah took her pain to God in a way that she hadn't done before. So 1 Samuel 1.9, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So you have Eli here. Eli's the priest. Eli's also the current judge of Israel. We'll learn more about him as we go. He's already an old man. Hannah told, tells Eli what she's praying for. There's a whole funny story where he thinks that she's drunk because she's not speaking out loud. She's just it's early in the morning and her lips are moving and she looks a little wild and she's crying. He thinks, hey, stop drinking. <laughs> 
but he's wrong. And she explains to him what she wants, and he blesses her. And then 1 Samuel 1.19, they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So God, God answers Hannah's prayer. Uh, as he's answered many of our prayers, not just for children, but prayers that we pray to God when we're in grief, when we're in pain, when we're in need, when we're tormented. Maybe we even have someone in our life who torments us, like Hannah had the other wife. Polygamy, it's a bad deal, by the way. It's nice not to practice it today. Um, but that was certainly one of the problems. So Hannah prays, and God answers. He opens her womb, he gives her a child. So Samuel's kind of a miracle baby. You might think miracle's kind of a strong word, isn't it? I mean, she was childbearing age. It's not like she was a virgin, like the Virgin Mary. Okay, special baby, right? Special baby, special answer to prayer. There's lots of special babies and miracle babies in the Bible, and I want to talk about that for a minute. I wonder, can you help me name some? Any kids in here? Any adults who want to just, just yell out some names of special babies, miracle babies in the Bible? We've talked about a bunch of them. Jesus, the biggest miracle baby of all. Yes. Born to a virgin. All right. Who else? Isaac, born to a woman too old to have children. Joseph, you could argue... Yeah, you could argue that a lot of Jacob's kids are miracle babies because his wives were at various times barren, especially Rachel, and then Rachel prayed. Yeah, so you have the same kind of circumstance. That's right. Anyone else? John the Baptist, yes, also born to a woman too old to have children. Is there another one? Moses, yes. Moses sort of different, like there's a baby, everyone's having babies, but then all the rest of the babies are killed. By, by the Egyptians, and Moses is hidden. Samson also is a special miracle baby. So there's a lot of miracle babies and children. It's like God is making a point of it. God is making a point of it. Why? What is he trying to teach us? What's the deal with all these miracle babies? I have a few things. I have a few things I think it teaches us. So the first of all, babies... Um, Every baby that's born, every baby that's conceived and born is a reminder from God that he's the creator and that we're the creatures. He creates each of those precious babies in the womb. He creates them. They don't just happen. If you've ever tried to have kids as a married couple but can't, and we had some of that pain, some of you know before we had our children, you have a feeling of helplessness. You have a feeling of helplessness. Doctors can only take you so far. Fertility treatments can only take you so far. It's God who opens and closes the womb. And any children we have are gifts from him. And God is emphasizing that hard in the pages of Scripture. I mean, it's no accident that so many wives of the important people, Abraham, Abraham, without heirs, God's promises can't be fulfilled. Where's, my, where's the son? God's like, I got this, but I'm going to make you wait. I'm going to make a point of it. You're going to know that it wasn't because you decided I'm having kids that you had kids. It's because I decided you had kids. So God wants to make sure that we know he creates life. And in fact, 
Let's put it like this. He creates not just all people, but in particular, think of it this way, he creates his people literally, physically in the womb. He creates us in the womb. And I want to talk more about that later. But there's a second piece that babies have to teach us, which is that man babies are weak. They are born weak and needy and helpless. They need our love and care and protection. They can't do anything for, our, our, for themselves, and we can't do anything for ourselves when we're born. That's how we come into the world. Sort of pathetic. Um, and then even as we grow older and stronger, we remain vulnerable and weak. But babies are the reminder, right? Babies are the reminder. You're weak. You couldn't create yourself. You couldn't help yourself when you were born. And Jesus didn't shy away from being born vulnerable, weak, and helpless. He didn't just appear in the world, come down from the sky like an angel with his armies at his back. He came into the world weak, helpless, and vulnerable. And he was God in the flesh, but there he was. There he was in a stable, born of a virgin. So uh, you see God's power in his birth, but it begins in weakness. It begins in weakness. And God loves this kind of weakness. He loves it. It's precious to him. It's precious to him. He loves children. And his idea of strength is not our idea of strength. That's the main thing I want you to remember today as we talk about Samuel. His idea of strength is not our idea of strength. You have a baby, the baby's weak, the mom's weak, she just gave birth, the husband's certainly weak, he can't do anything, ah, you know. Ah, are you okay, honey? You know, he can, he can hold her hand, maybe. But he can't do very much. Everyone is weak. Everyone is weak. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven to 29 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So are you willing to be weak? Weak in the right ways. Humble before God. Or do you need to feel strong in the way that the world defines strength? I can do it all on my own. I don't have to ever remember that I was a baby once. That's dumb. Now I'm tough, and even if I'm old and frail, I'm still going to pretend that I'm tough. I don't need anyone. I don't need God. I don't need his people. Are you willing to be weak? All right, so Hannah starts as the butt of her rival's jokes, no babies, but she ends actually in an exalted place because God answers her prayer, and God gives her a special child, a child who will deliver God's people. It's special. Samuel's not an ordinary baby. And Hannah has this beautiful prayer. This is the longest thing I'll read today. I wanted to read the whole thing. It's this prayer that has the idea of God privileging the weak and the humble over the proud. This is how God likes to work. So this is Samuel 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full 
have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, it's like the grave, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I mean, one thing you might hear right away is how cosmic she gets. She goes cosmic. She goes big. She goes worldwide in her prayer. You might, I mean, if you were there, maybe you would have the feeling of like, Hannah, like easy. It's great God answered your prayers. Like, it's great you have a baby. That's really cool. But it's just a baby. I mean, let's be honest. It's one little thing, right? It's not this whole gigantic thing. You'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. Because Hannah is tapped into the reality of who God is. She's tapped into the reality of how he works. She sees it all in this little baby. In that little baby. Nothing, right? Weak, helpless baby. She sees that this is who God is. This is what he's going to do. He's going to save his people. He'll use weakness to make us strong. And he'll bring mighty people out of Little nothings, like you and me. That is how God works. So be humble. Be humble, right? That's the takeaway. What are times in your life that God has rescued you from something, from somewhere? From a sin, from a place of depression or darkness, from some place of agony or torment like Hannah? If you've been a Christian for a while, you can probably think of a place that God's done that for you. You should remember that. You should remember that That's an experience of who God is, not just in that one moment, but all the time. He delights to do that, and he wants us to cry out to him. He wants us to feel our weakness and our need of him and ask for help. And if we do, he's going to answer us. He's going to answer us. All right. So Hannah promised Samuel to the Lord. She gives him to Eli the priest to be his apprentice. She takes him there when he's weaned, which in ancient Israel was three, four years old. And she gives him to Eli. Here he is. I said I'd give him to you. Here he is. We don't really have the same thing today. Does anyone here have a three-year-old that you want to give to me, Nathan and Jake, to raise, like run sound and (laughs) preach? Maybe on a bad day, right? You're like, yeah, take my three-year-old. No, we don't have that today. (laughs) It's not the same thing. It's not the same culture. I think the application is, here's an easy one. If you want your kids to serve the Lord, make them part of the life of the church, (laughs) right? Bring them to King's Kids, bring them to the ark. Bring your kids here. If they're old enough to help us set up and tear down, oh boy, we could use their help. That's sweet. Hannah has a good attitude about it. I'm amazed that she did that. She's his mother, she loves him. She sees him once a year from now on, once a year when she travels up for worship. Isn't that wild? But God blesses her and God gives her a bunch of other kids as well. So now Eli has this boy. 
old Eli. And Samuel becomes like a son to him. And that's a good thing. Because Eli already has two sons named Hophni and Phinehas, and they stink. They're worthless. They're grown. They're priests. They're priests at the house of the Lord where Eli is, but they're terrible priests. So 1 Samuel 2.12 says that they didn't know the Lord, meaning they don't have a relationship with him and they don't want to. They don't honor him. They don't care about him. They spit in his face. That's them. So here's what 1 Samuel 2.17 says about this situation. And let me, I guess I should give a little context. What they're doing while they serve the Lord is when people come with meat, they send their guy and they're like, give me the best parts of that meat now. Where does that meat go? It goes to be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. And these guys are like, nope. No, I'm taking it early so that I make sure I get the best and biggest portion. So they're undermining the worship of God. They really are spitting in God's face. 1 Samuel 17 says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. God doesn't treat all sins equally. One thing that made this sin worse is not just that it was big in and of itself, which it was, but it was all the time. They were not going to stop. It was their life. And these guys were like church leaders, right? Think of them as pastors. If you found out that Jake and I were constantly like blackmailing people in the congregation for their money, and we were going to stop. Maybe someone should step in and do something about that. (laughs) All right, so Eli, Eli doesn't. He doesn't do anything about it. He's their dad. He's the priest over them. He does not do anything about it. There is a rebuke. There is a rebuke that I'll paraphrase for you. He does go and say they shouldn't. But here's, here's the feeling of his rebuke. It's like if you saw your kid murder his grandmother with an axe. And you came into the room. And you said, son, that's bad. That's against God's commandments. You shouldn't do that. You'll get in trouble. It's not exactly adequate to the situation. That really is Eli's rebuke. Uh, And so it's his way of actually not really rebuking them. It's his way of not really warning them about God's anger against their sin. It's his way, and certainly he doesn't remove them from their post. So he doesn't deal with them. And a man of God, a prophet, comes to Eli and says, God is about to deal with you and your house. He's going to put you to death. He's going to put your sons to death. He's going to put all their descendants under a curse. And here's here's one line from this message. I think it's the most interesting one. 1 Samuel 2.29, Why then, this is to Eli, right? Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel? By the way, we learn later in the story that Eli is very fat. So I think when it says fattening yourselves, it's literal. <laughs> like, Eli may not approve of what his sons do, and we know that he, don't, he doesn't, but he's eating it. He's eating what they steal. <laughs> so the reason I read that verse is that it says, Eli honored his sons above God. We love our kids, right? <laughs> Can you think of places where you may be tempted, where you have been tempted to honor your kids above God? What does that even look like? What does that look like? I think it looks like protecting them from the consequences of their sins. I think it looks like not telling them the truth, like not disciplining them, like not caring. 
honoring them above God. But when God comes first in your family, that's actually the way that you love your kids. Because protecting your kids from their sin, from its consequences, I mean, it isn't love. Putting God first lets you actually love your kids. And when you do that, you want to honor God, right? Which means you want your kids to honor God. Which means you'll deal honestly with their sins. And as parents, we all have to watch out for ways we're tempted to put our kids over God. (laughs) Make an idol of them. That's what that is. So ask God for the humility (laughs) to see where you're tempted to do that. And certainly ask God for the humility to listen If God sends another believer to you to just ask some questions or say, little Johnny was a terror in Sunday school this morning. That's actually hard to hear. And it's also hard for someone to say a lot of the time. It takes a little faith to tell that. So be ready to listen to that. That's how we help each other because we all need help loving and raising our kids. We need it. We all have blind spots. Um, I just want to say here, Eli... Eli is a good man. He's not a monster. He's basically, like, if you knew Eli and you thought about his decades of service to God, you would think this is a good man, and you'd be right. But how often do the people in the Bible, how often do we have these horrible flaws, these terrible sins that we haven't dealt with? Now, all hope is not lost. God gives us opportunities to deal with them, but... This is who we are. This is who the people of God are. Messed up. Messed up. Eli's a godly man. His sons are out of control. His sin is putting them over God. All right. Oh, and by the way, do you know how Samuel's sons one day are going to turn out when he's an old man? He's going to make them judges like he is, and they're going to be crooks. They're going to take bribes. It's a thing. They're not going to turn out well. All right. So back to this situation. God is about to reverse things, kind of like in Hannah's prayer. Samuel is about to sort of replace Eli because God's going to judge Eli, and God is raising up this little boy named Samuel. Let me read this section about where God talks to Samuel directly for the first time. I remember hearing this story when I was a kid and thinking what it would be like. 1 Samuel 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Boy, we think, we don't know how old he is. But I've heard 12. I think 12 is a pretty good placeholder. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. Samuel's not expecting to hear God speak to him. This has not happened before. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am. For you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. When it says Samuel didn't know the Lord, I connected that at first to Eli's sons. They didn't know the Lord. But I think here it means something different. What it means is he didn't know the Lord like this. He wasn't ready to hear direct 
divine revelation from God. This was the first time. So reading on, And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood. So there's a physical manifestation of God. God is showing himself too. And stood calling it as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So God calls this kid to hear this message and deliver it. Of course, Samuel doesn't want to tell this message. (laughs) He tries not to, but Eli knows God has given Samuel a message and he makes Samuel swear. He even puts him under a curse. If you don't tell me, may God curse you. And so Samuel tells him. Eli, this is again where you see Eli has some real integrity. He's not, he wants to know what God says. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he, Eli, said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now you may think that's Eli being passive, right? Oh, whatever. God's going to be God. No. This is actually humility in the face of judgment. This is actually Eli saying, God is in the right and I'm not. How well do we respond when we feel God disciplining us? Or when we suffer the consequences of our sin in our lives, do we respond like that? Do we get bitter? Do we get mad? Do we think it's not fair? Do we think, you know, Tom got away with it? Whoever Tom is in your life, you know. God didn't seem to care about his sin but he's being really hard on me. How do we respond? Eli's response is humble. And then there's Samuel, little Samuel, having to deliver this message of judgment. How well do you and I do when there's something we need to say that's hard to other people? We do, in fact, all have kind of a big, scary message of judgment. It comes with sharing the gospel. Because the gospel is that God saves us from our sins. Well, if you want to understand what it means to be saved from your sins, you have to help people understand that not being saved from their sins means suffering the wrath of God in hell. That's a scary message of judgment. How often have you or I not opened our mouth to someone? Not because there wasn't an opportunity, right? But because we were like, I feel timid. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want this person not to like me. Even if God is calling me right now to say this, no, I won't. And then in smaller things, how often, I mean, let's just go back to parents and kids. Maybe it's hard for our children's church teachers to sometimes say things to parents that they probably should, like, I think your kid is struggling with X, Y, or Z. That could be helpful. That could be hard to say. 
we need to ask God for courage, don't we? We need to not be timid, and we need to be faithful to say what he gives us to say. All right, well, Eli does die. He dies along with his sons. I'm not going to tell that part of the story today. It involves a major battle against the enemies of God, the Philistines. But once Eli is gone, Samuel is known in the land as a prophet of the Lord. Samuel has this close relationship with God. And in response to Samuel's prayer, God gives the people this big military victory against the Philistines. And Samuel's life is dedicated to leading God's people to worship him, to get rid of their idols, to worship him. And Samuel protects them militarily, and he teaches them about God's ways, and he loves them. And he does this for decades. He does this for decades. But I just want to talk about near the end of his life for a minute. And that's when he enters this period of painful disappointment and waiting. And I think we all know what it's like to have painful disappointment and waiting. If you're a Christian, you should. You should, as for reasons we'll talk about. So Samuel gets old. And it's obvious to everyone that his sons are not taking up the mantle, right? Like I, like I mentioned earlier, they're not the guys. And so the people come to Samuel and say, okay, we want a king. Your sons aren't cutting it. Give us a king like the other nations to rule over us. That's what we want. So this sounds bad to Samuel. You might wonder why it sounds bad. It sounds bad to Samuel, and it sounds worse to God. So let me read in chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So what Samuel sort of gets at first and what God makes clear is that in this case, what it means to ask for a king is to say, we reject the king we have. We don't want God to be our king. We don't want him. The people do have a king, actually. They have one. No, 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 no. Not him. Give us a king like the other nations. Give us just a dude that we can see. We'll follow him. You can imagine that this is depressing to Samuel. You can imagine it feels like a failure. Here, I, I've spent decades of my life teaching you that God is your king. I've spent decades of my life teaching you to love God and follow him. You've seen God do miracles. You've heard God speak through me. And now you're like, no, I don't want him. But it's not a failure of Samuel. Samuel might feel like it's a failure, but God says it's not a failure. It's not, and they're not rejecting you. You didn't do anything wrong. He says, this is the way it is with these people. This is the way it is with their hearts. So God says, give them a king. Well, then, then the king himself is going to be maybe an even bigger disappointment. Okay, who's the first king of Israel? You know his name. Saul? Did someone say Saul? Saul! It's Saul! Saul, Saul! Big and tall! Handsome Saul! Saul makes a really great first impression. I don't know, the last time you read the story of Saul in 1 Samuel, man, he makes a great first impression hopping off the pages of scripture. He's this humble, unassuming guy. He looks like a leader. He's taller than everyone else. That's how we like our leaders, right? Jake wins. Nathan wins. Ben does not win. Tall, tall. Hey, hey, it's okay. God uses this short. So 
man, Saul seems to be the bee's knees. Saul isn't looking to be in charge. Saul's like, no, there's some pretty funny stuff Saul does. He's like, I'm not, what? King? Like, what? No, me? No. So Samuel anoints Saul king. And you can feel the excitement in the air. You can even, I think you can feel Samuel's excitement. I think it's clear. Look at this guy. He's, he's tall. The king, he's tall. So then Saul has his first victory. God's spirit comes on him in a special way, and he rallies the troops, and they go and de- defeat the Ammonites, another enemy of God's people. And they really, really mop the floor with them. And everyone's like, it's the king. It's a king. He's so tall. He beat the bad guys. We have a king. So Samuel is like, okay, this is looking good. I've poured into Saul. I've told him what he needs to do. I'm going to give a farewell speech now, kind of, sort of. He gives this speech where he's like, you guys are evil. You should not have asked for a king. You rejected God. You better watch it. Your job now, and the king's job, is to serve God and follow him. And if you do that, if you put God first, it's going to go well for you. All right, so that's Samuel's speech. It's an intense speech. And then Samuel steps back a little. Saul's flexing his muscles. He's getting ready for the next battle with bad guys. And that is as good as it gets because everything goes downhill so fast, so fast. Saul has these two really big sins just right out of the gate where he refuses to obey God's command. I won't even go into them, but they're just these blatant rejections of what God has told him to do. It's just explicit. And he starts revealing his character. And you're like, oh, no. And so God talks to Samuel about what to do about this guy. First Samuel 15.10, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Angry? Yeah. Samuel anointed this guy king. He poured into him. And now God is like, no, I'm done with him. Samuel's actually mad at God. So Samuel goes to tell Saul, Saul, it's over. God's rejected you. You are done. God is going to make someone else king in your place who's better than you. And then Samuel leaves. 1 Samuel 15, 35, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel was invested in this guy. Samuel was invested. This was like the last big thing Samuel was going to do in his career as a judge. He's kind of handing over leadership of Israel to this man. This man is a total failure. He's a giant negative. If you've been a Christian for a while, there are people you've loved. There are people you've prayed for. There are maybe churches or causes or whatever that you've poured into. And then it's gone off the rails. That person has turned away from God. You felt called by God to love them. You felt you had some special times together. That person is gone now. They don't want anything to do with you. They don't want anything to do with God. I bet you have someone like that in your life. If you don't, you may someday. And you're like, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And you try to retrace your steps. Like, maybe if I'd said that thing... They'd still be here. 
And look, it's true our sin screws things up, but this isn't a story about that. Samuel didn't do anything wrong. This was that person's heart, and God revealed it. And sometimes our job as Christians is to love people and to pour into people and then watch as they leave and even leave the faith. And you can't escape that. And if there's no one in your life who could hurt you that way, i got to ask, who are you loving? (laughs) Who are you pouring into? This is part of being weak and vulnerable, is to give our hearts to people who we can't see their hearts. God only knows what's going to happen. And so there's a lot of pain in Samuel's life. All of a sudden, who is this? What is this thing? What just happened? So Samuel needs to go and anoint someone else, which he does. And this is the last big thing he does. He has to do this in secret so that Saul doesn't kill him. And you know who he anoints as king, right? Who is it? David. It's David. Finally, a man after God's own heart. A man with a lot of big sins of his own. And God willing, in a couple of months, we'll come back and we'll do one last faith of our fathers on David. But you know the the Samuel's part of it, right? Samuel goes to anoint him. David is the youngest of eight brothers. Samuel goes to this man's house, Jesse their father, and Jesse has all his sons from the oldest on down line up. And the first guy is named Eliab, or Eliab, the firstborn. And Samuel is like, this is the guy. So 1 Samuel 16, 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Because Eliab is tall and good-looking. Kind of like someone else we just met, Saul, okay? But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You think Samuel would have learned that lesson already? He's just like, let's find the next tall, good-looking guy (laughs) to replace Saul. God's like, no, (laughs) I'm looking at the heart, man. I'm looking at the heart. I want someone whose heart is humble, right? I don't just want the toughest, best-looking guy. And so Samuel passes this guy by. He passes the next six sons by. He's like, is there, you must have another son because it's not any of these. And his dad's like, well, there is, I mean, there is, there is the youngest, but he's with the sheep and he's the youngest. We keep him out with the sheep. Not very impressed. His dad isn't very impressed. His brothers are not very impressed with David. No one seems very impressed with David. Samuel's like, bring him. And it's David. David is the one. David is the one that Samuel anoints. David is the kid who's going to be king. It also happens, I always think this is funny, it also happens David is really good looking. He's just not tall. But it's still not about the outward appearance. But it is funny that Scripture is like, he was really handsome. (laughs) I think that's funny. Um, But it's still not about that. It actually is David's heart that is the most important thing about him, and that's what's going to make David a really great king, in spite of his many sins. So this is about the end of the story. Samuel goes home. There, David's anointed. Saul's still on the throne. And actually, things just continued like that for a long time. Saul goes bonkers. He's jealous of David. And for years and years, he spends his time chasing David and trying to kill him. And David is hiding in caves. Now wait, David's anointed, and Saul's 
been deposed by God, sort of, but Saul's still there, and David's not on the throne, and David is like, ah, I feel like I'm going to die all the time, because I am about to die all the time, and Saul's like, ah, I'm crazy, and I'm in charge. And guess who doesn't get to see that situation resolve? Samuel. Samuel dies while things are still a complete mess. Talk about a life of disappointment. And then he's waiting and waiting and waiting to see, I anointed this kid. He's God's choice. And then I die. I don't, see, I don't get to see it. What are you waiting for in your life? What are you hoping for that's bigger, that's going to outlive you, outlast you? What are you hoping for? What are you invested in that you might not get to see finished? If you're a believer, I can tell you a little bit about how you die. I'm not a prophet, but I can tell you. You will die with things unfinished. You'll die with a lot of things in your life, maybe, a mess. You'll die with the world a mess. You'll die, maybe, with the church a mess. And you'll die with things that you're waiting and hoping for and praying for, and you'll die before God answers those prayers. And we've got to be okay with that. We've got to be okay to be weak and to be small and humble. And we, if we do that, we can die well. All right, one last thing, last thing. I want to come back to the miracle babies real quick. Because I want to ask you, I want to talk about one other thing that they teach us. I want to ask you, what's the difference? What went wrong between Samuel on the one hand and Eli's sons on the other hand? I mean, they both kind of had Eli as a dad. They both were in the service of God. They both had sort of a place of privilege. They both had a lot of the same advantages. Okay, what's the difference between David and Saul? They both seem kind of humble. Neither of them was like power hungry or... They both were like chosen by God, right? Right? What's the difference? I mean, the answer is what the miracle babies have to teach us, which is this. Um, all throughout the history of God's people, we, God's people, we get tempted to forget that God is the one who creates his people spiritually. When Jesus talks about this, he says, you must be born again, right? You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be a child of God, not by the will of the flesh, our strength, our decisions, but by the will of God. Miracle babies, special babies come because God opens the womb. Well, in the same way that God opens the physical womb, God gives spiritual life to his people. God is the one who makes his people out of nothing. And we can't think that, well, if I make sure to take little Johnny and little Sarah to Sunday school at church all the time and teach them the Bible, they'll be God's son, they'll be God's daughter. We rely on, we are waiting on God to do something, to act, to give our kids a new heart. And we're in the same position. We have to be born again. We have to be born again. That is a position of weakness and helplessness. Ephesians 2.10 For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created in Christ Jesus. We need to remember this. We need to remember that's who we are, so that we can be humble before God and teach our kids that humility and give them to God and give our lives to God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Samuel's story. Thank you for using little babies to overthrow proud, to undermine your enemies. 
Thank you for using weak people like us to do your kingdom work. Um, God, we pray that we would be humble so that we can be useful. Help us, help our kids. We ask that you would give all of us new hearts, that you would make us your own in Christ. And we pray that you would bless our church as your witness here in Evansville. Amen.